1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we are continuing with the Apostle Paul as he addresses this same concern of the Corinthians, but at this point, the way he argues begins to shift a little, and he begins to work his way toward the the end, and so I want to read all of chapter 3 just to situate this in our minds because we'll probably be in this chapter for a few weeks. So read with me 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh." For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted... Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw... Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again... The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. This is God's word. Now let's pray and ask him to help us to understand a little of it. Father, we thank you again for your word, and we ask now that you would give us help to understand. 
Open our eyes to see. Open our hearts to receive. Lord, help our minds to focus and to, to listen well. Lord, I, we know that we will be held accountable for what we hear and what we do with what we hear. So please give us much-needed grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the beginning, before God created the heavens and the earth, there was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And this God, that we might refer to as the God with a Word, the God who is the Word, created all things that there is. And He created all things by His Word. And still today, He upholds all things by the word of His power. If we learn anything from Scripture very early in our reading, if you begin in Genesis and you begin to read, one of the first things that you learn, if you pay attention, is that our God is a speaking God. He's a God with a word. He's a God who reveals Himself through speech. He, he speaks creation into existence. He breathes the breath of life into His image bearers. He comes to man in the garden and He makes a covenant with him, complete with promises and threatenings. He is a speaking God. A God who, as a distinct feature of His infinite perfection, reveals Himself through His Word. There are many people who would say, well, there might be a God, but there's no way to know. Well, that, that, that maybe God is imperfect. Because perfection requires that He make Himself known as the Creator and Sustainer of all things. And this, the God of the Bible has done. Now, when man sinned in the garden and fell from his original innocence, the first thing that we hear is literally the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This God with a word comes revealing Himself and He speaks to Adam and Eve. And as God speaks to His sinful creatures, among the things that He says, one of them is that He promises them a Savior. He promises them a Savior who would crush the head of the serpent. John tells us, the way he words this is, he would destroy the works of the devil. So the God, who is the God with a word, and the God who speaks, speaks, and he reveals this. I'm going to save, and I'm also going to destroy this enemy of my people. And throughout the Old Testament, this speaking God continues to promise a Savior. And He continues to promise salvation for His people. And as you're reading the Bible, if you pay attention, that theme of God's coming salvation is never very far out of your reach. This Savior will come from the lineage of Abraham and David, God says. He will be born to a virgin, God says. He will bear our iniquities on Himself, God says. He will be crushed by God Himself. But He will not see corruption in the grave, God says. He will rise from the dead. He will prolong His days. He will see His offspring. And He will ascend into the heavens and take His 
seat at the right hand of God and rule over His enemies, God says. All of that we see in the Old Testament. God is promising this Savior and promising this salvation. And then when we get to the New Testament, as it's worded there, in the fullness of time, just as God had promised, the eternal Word of the living, speaking God became flesh and dwelt among His people. Everything God ever said was fulfilled in the man Christ Jesus. With the coming of Christ, the promised Savior arrives. In the holy life of Christ, the perfect law of God is fulfilled. And the unwavering justice of God that demands punishment for sin is satisfied in the atoning death of Jesus Christ for sinners. God made a promise and He kept on saying the same thing over and over and over again. And then when Christ comes, we say... There His promise is fulfilled. He did exactly what He said He would do. Three days after His death, He's raised from the dead. He comes out of the grave. That's why we're here today. He he was raised on the first day of the week. Forty days after that, He goes up in the clouds of heaven. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. Ten days after that, He sends His Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And Ephesians 4, describing that That sending says, when He ascended on high, He gave gifts to men. I'm splicing the text there to focus on this idea. He ascended on high and He gave gifts to men. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. Now you notice I read that verse with the punctuation of the older translations. He gave gifts to men for the work of the ministry. This speaking God, as Christ ascends into the heaven, He he did not cease to speak, but rather He simply begins to funnel His speech through these offices given to the church by the risen ascended, reigning Lord Jesus. And so it happens that God's promised salvation from that point is now going to be promulgated throughout the world through the preaching of the gospel and through teaching and instruction from God's Word by those men that fulfill those offices that Christ gave to His church. In other words, God will save sinners through preaching. God will sanctify sinners through preaching, as Christ prayed, sanctify them by the truth. Thy word is truth. Through these men, God's promise of worldwide redemption will be brought to pass. That is is the purpose of Christ in the earth now. Now the question for today is this. In light of all of that, beginning from really eternity, and working up through time, through the the life and death and resurrection of Christ, through the time of the apostles, and all the way down to our own day, in light of all of that, how should we think about those men themselves? How should we think about them? These men who fill, fill these offices. 
and perform this work that is so central to the eternal purposes of God? How should we think about them? Now the question must be answered from the Word of God. Though pretty much everybody that, that I know of in this room would profess to be a Christian, uh, the, the majority of us, I, I believe, have truly been born again by the Spirit of God. Though that be the case, we are still sinners. And as sinners, we still have a tendency to fall off on these, off the side of the road in these ditches of, of thought, on these extremes, on every issue. And, and this issue is no different. On the one side, you've got people like Miriam and Aaron under the Old Covenant who would say, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has He not spoken through us also? This type of person acts as if all of God's people in, in their function in the church were, are essentially the same. That everything that God is doing now is, is basically an egalitarian, level playing field. Everybody and anyone who wants to do anything can, will, and should do whatever. That's one extreme. On the other side, you've got people like the people of Lystra in the book of Acts who look at a preacher and they say, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. They exalt men to an unhealthy status that borders on and, and very often enters into idolatry. So what's the middle ground? What is the proper way to think about those whom God has called and gifted for these functions in the church? As Christians, we should desire, we want to think rightly. As a Christian, if you're, if you're born again, you find out the Word of God reveals that your thinking is wrong. You say, I don't want to stay there. I want to think rightly. That's, that's our, our condition. We, we want to think rightly. We don't want to be in error or sin. We want to please our Father with our thoughts. We want to rightly honor the means and methods that He's ordained for the advancement of His name and His glory and His gospel in the earth. We want to, we want to do right by Him. We don't want to think too low of what God has ordained. Nor do we want to think too high of, of these men that God has placed in these offices. We want to honor God. And Paul says in Romans 12, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We as Christians still, on a regular basis, have to be transformed through the renewing of our minds away from wrong thinking to right thinking. If anybody else or anybody in here believes that their thinking on every issue has all completely been transformed and renewed to the right way of thinking, let me know. I don't think any of us would say that. We, we would say... Though, though I believe that I'm bringing matters to the Word of God, I know there are matters where my thinking is wrong. And we want the Word of God to transform us. We, we need to have our minds renewed by the Word of God so that we can think properly about the men who preach the Word of God to us. So how should we think about preachers? That's been Paul's theme. How should we think about preachers? And in our text Today, Paul begins to answer that question. Look again at verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 3. And this is, this is all we'll consider, just introducing us into this chapter. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants 
through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. Now in this verse we have a question that we all must answer and then an answer that we all need to hear. Two parts. So first let's consider a question that we all must answer. A question we all must answer. Here's the question. What then is Paul or what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Now I know technically that's two questions. For us it's going to essentially boil down to one question and I believe if you would ask the Apostle Paul he would say it's really just one question. Later on he says that these men who work, we are one. But here's the question. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? First we need to note that Paul is returning to the original issue which began this whole discussion back in chapter 1. Back in chapter 1 verse 11, remember we, we uh, were told that there's quarreling. It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And the substance of the quarrel was that they had divided over preachers. Verse 12 what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. They had divided into these various factions or groups opposing one another, and the, the, the dividing line between them was their favorite preacher. That's the problem. And Paul has opened this epistle by addressing this as the first issue. If you think about the whole epistle, the last thing he discusses is uh, errors with regard to the resurrection. There are many things that he addresses, but he starts here, this quarreling and this division. And his method has gone something like this. First, he attacked the worldly wisdom which would elevate men in order to elevate self. And then he elevated godly wisdom above all of that foolishness of men. That was chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Then in 26 to 31 of chapter 1, he reminded them of God's own wisdom and their salvation. He asked them, what were you? You were not great and, and mighty and wealthy, powerful men when God saved you. Therefore, that, those structures of the world, God doesn't, God doesn't deal with men according to those. God's wisdom has made foolish the wisdom of men. Then picking up in chapter 2 verses 1 through 5, Paul addressed or displayed God's wisdom in his own preaching. Paul did not come with, with excellence of human wisdom and speech, and yet God still saved. God does not function according to man's wisdom. Then throughout the rest of chapter 2, Paul continues to amplify God's wisdom in divine revelation through the Holy Spirit. Only the Spirit of God can make known the things of the wisdom of God. And then in chapter 3, as we saw several weeks ago, verses 1 through 5, he says, essentially, I couldn't address you as mature because you're not acting very maturely. Self is still ruling your actions. And you're unable to see truly the wisdom of God in its proper light because of your sinful selfishness. They're quarreling over preachers was, at its most basic level, the introduction of worldly wisdom into the church which had smothered their love for one another with a big wet blanket of selfishness. If you're acting selfishly, if you've got self at the head of all of your activities, you cannot love others. 
These things are opposed. There's either selfless love or there will be selfish opposition and strife. And that's what was happening in Corinth. Now, having said all of that and having laid down this solid reproof for the way, of, the way that they were thinking and acting, he has now made his way back full circle to address this issue in a positive light. In essence, all of that we could say, Paul is saying, you shouldn't be dividing up and quarreling over preachers. That's selfish, that's worldly, that's contrary to the way that God has chosen to work. And then that leads to this question. Well, then what is the right way to think of these men? God's Word always does this. It doesn't just say, don't do that, and then leave us with no positive route. The Word of God always works to rebuke and reprove, but then also to correct and teach and train in righteousness. So he doesn't just say, don't, don't think about them that way. You can't think about them that way and leave them to twiddle their thumbs saying, well, well how do we think about them? No, he, he's now going to answer that question. How, what is the right way to view these men? What is, or what then is Apollos? What is Paul? That's his question. And it's important that we notice that Paul asks, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? He does not ask, who is Apollos? Or who is Paul? Now I know that some of you are looking at your English Bibles and you see the pronoun, who. And even, even if you're not looking at the, the translation different in English, I think we can all recognize the difference in our modern parlance between who and what. And Paul's emphasis here is trying to steer them away from who to what? Technically speaking, we know who these men are. We know who Paul is, formerly known as Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee, taught at the feet of Gamaliel, converted on the road to Damascus, made an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's known as the apostle of the Gentiles. We know who Paul is. We know who Apollos is, a Jewish man from Alexandria, a very eloquent speaker well-versed in the Scriptures, very bold in his proclamation and refutation of the Jews. I would imagine the Corinthians, having spent personal time with these men, they knew who these men more than we do. They knew details that have not been revealed to us. They knew who these men were. And all of this, the, the who, is normally what we as fallen men and women focus on. The who. Who is he? Where is he from? Where was he trained? What circles does he run in? We're trying to nail down the specific and special details and, and facets of, a, of an individual. The, the, the question, who, distinguishes every individual person from all of the rest by his own personal traits, his history, his attainment. The, 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 the answer to the question who that describes me will never describe you because I'm not you and you're not me. And that's what, what they were after. Who always points us to the man himself. But the question what forces the Corinthians to deal not with personality but with office, with role or with function. The whole controversy among the Corinthians was over who? Who do you follow? Well, I follow Paul. 
Who is Paul? He's the apostle. Well, he's not the one who's very eloquent. Who do you follow? Well, I follow Apollos. Who is Apollos? Well, he's the one who's eloquent. Well, he's not the one who's the apostle. That was, that was their argument. Who are you with? Who are you behind? One commentator says, quote, It is the immature person who focuses on personalities involved, the who, while Paul sees the office, the what, to which he and Apollos have been called to be the critical issue. But you see, this is how the Corinthian culture had taught them to think. Think in terms of who, not what. And sadly, our world, and even much of the visible church in our day, still does this very same thing. We are taught to think the same way. We are an entertainment-driven, personality-driven, celebrity-driven culture as a whole, and that seeps into the church. And so when it comes time for us to listen to or follow or learn from a preacher, our first question is often who, not what. Who is he? Is he the one who wrote that book or that book? Is, is he the one that said such and such? Didn't he speak at that conference with so-and-so? Where did he go to seminary? Didn't he used to run around with this crowd or that crowd? The details of the man, the personality, the things that make him distinct. We capitalize on all the distinctions which make an individual stand apart from others, usually because it's those distinctions which allow us to grab a little bit of that glory for ourselves. And so we attach ourselves to some little part of the who, and it makes us feel significant. Because that man is significant. Why? Well, that little distinct character trait that makes him who he is. And we attach ourselves to that, and we're able to glory in ourselves a little bit as we glory in man. But that's all wrong. Right? We're Christians, we are followers of Christ, not men. The only who that matters to us is Jesus Christ Himself. And this is actually where Paul began, if you remember. Is Christ divided? Who do you follow? Paul. Who do you follow? Apollos. Who do you follow? Cephas. Who do you follow? Christ. Is Christ divided? He, he zeroes in on the only who that matters. Was Paul crucified for you? What is the assumption or the implication? Christ the one who was crucified for you is really the only one that matters. He began here and now he's made his way back around. He took them immediately to the only who that really matters in the Christian life and that is Christ himself. There is no other who and there is no other what that can stand with Christ. He's the only one that matters. If we were to ask, what is Christ? Well, he's the prophet, priest, and king of God's people. There's no other what like him. He's the propitiation for our sins. There's no other what like him. He's the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's the advocate that we have with the Father in heaven. There's no what like him, and there's no who like Christ. If we ask, who is Christ? Well, he's the eternal word of God. There's no other who like him. He's God the Son. But He's also the Son of Man. He is the incarnate deity. He's the only one in His class. Whether we ask what or whether we ask who. With men, there are many who's that might be the same what. What is He? He's a fireman. 
Well, who else is a fireman? All of those other men, all of those who's can also be this what? But with Christ, he's the only who who can be this what? Hopefully that's not confusing. It's his unique person, the who, which makes his office and function, the what, to be glorious and to be efficacious for our salvation. Many have died, but only one eternal word and son of God has been the Lamb of God who could die and take away the sins of the world. And it's when we finally get settled in our minds regarding Christ, the only who that matters, that all of these other what's, they will fall into their place. The Corinthians had taken Christ out of his place and had elevated men to that position. And that's why there was this quarreling. After Christ, in his church, having settled the who, Christ is the only who that matters, we settle that, then the question becomes no longer who, but what? What is Paul? What is Paulus? What function do these men serve? What role do they play? What purpose do they have in God's work of redemption? And this is the question that we all must answer in our day regarding those that Christ has given to the church. What are preachers? What are pastors or elders? We want to be very specific for us. What is Tracy? What is Paul? That's the question. We've been blessed for the past two weeks to have brothers visit us from other churches. What is Anthony Mathenia? What is Alpheus Atkins? That's the question. No longer who, but what? What are these men? Do you ever ask yourself that question or at least confirm the reality of the answer to this question as you enter into a time of the ministry of the Word? See, as Christians, when it comes to the things especially that are distinctively Christian, like sitting under the proclamation of the Word of God in the assembly of God's people, we don't have the liberty of just floating through and saying, well, it'll be what it'll be. No, it's our job to bring every one of these little things in our minds to the bar of Scripture and ask, what are these men? And confirm that, as we, especially as we sit under the Word of God. When this man or that man gets up here and does what men like us do, what are we? How should we think about them? The answer to that question would remedy so many of the problems in churches today. What are these men? It's a question that we all must answer. But secondly, we see the answer that we all need to hear. The answer we all need to hear. Those who preach and those who hear, those who listen, would all benefit from paying very close attention to the answer that Paul gives. Because he's asking, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? He puts himself and Apollos right there together. There's no distinction at this point in, in this matter. We're together. It's essentially one question. What are these men? Since he puts himself with Apollos... And he doesn't say, well, I'm an apostle and Apollos is not an apostle. He says, we're together. As he does that, we can conclude with that solidarity that every man who would, in the words of James, become teachers, my brother, every man who would come into that category, they all fall in, in, in together in this question. What are these men? How should we think about preachers? How should we think about pastors? How should we think about the gifted brother who preaches God's word? What are these men? Here's his answer. Servants. That's the answer. 
servants. Servants. Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Now I want to draw your attention to that word, servants. Because there are a lot of titles. We could go to other places in Scripture. And even here, Paul's going to go into more as we move through this chapter and into the next. But I want to focus on servants. The titles given to, to men, if we wanted to consolidate this whole category into the men through whom God brings His Word to His people. In the past, He might have been called the seer or the man of God or the prophet or the apostle. Today in the church we have pastor, overseer, elders, ambassadors, evangelist, the preacher. All of these are biblical terms to describe these men. But remember that Paul's dealing with a group of people here who are inclined to elevate these men higher than they ought to be elevated. So he chooses a particular word translated here as servants. What are these men? They are servants. How should we think about these men? We should regard them as servants. Servants. Now that word... It's translated here, servants, is, is variously translated throughout the New Testament. It's the word from which we get our English word, deacon. It's used of those who drew water for Christ's first miracle in Cana of Galilee, the servants. It's used of the civil magistrate in Romans 13. Phoebe is called a servant in Romans 16, 1. Of course, Paul refers to the deacons of the church using this term in 1 Timothy 3. But then he uses the same word to describe Timothy himself in 1 Timothy 4. In Romans 15, 8, Paul says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, or the uncircumcised, yeah, the circumcised, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Christ himself is described using this term. Servant. In many places it's translated as minister. Now a minister is one who works in service to another. And the emphasis of this word, there are several words that are translated servant in our English Bibles. The emphasis of this word is, is just that, the concept of service to another person. A servant or a minister is like a waiter at a restaurant. It's like a, a flight attendant on an airplane. This is the same word that the apostles used in Acts 6-2 when they said it is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word to serve tables, to minister tables. That's the word. Now in a restaurant, you know the waiter or the server is the one who comes and takes your order. And then he, he takes your order, he or she takes your order back to the chef or the cook. And then when the food is prepared, they bring the food out to you. And then and throughout the whole time, they make sure that your experience is satisfactory. Or do you have what you ordered to drink? Are your drinks topped off? Do you have enough napkins? Do you need some more napkins? Yes, we always need more napkins. And they'll bring you what you need. That's what the waiter does, the servant that's the picture of this word. They are there to serve you. The waiter doesn't tell you what to eat. You might ask their, their opinion, hey, what's good here? But they don't tell you what to eat. The waiter doesn't cook the food. 
The waiter just brings you the food. That's this word. A servant. A minister. What is Apollos? What is Paul? What is the preacher? What is the pastor? They are ministers. They are servants. They exist to make sure that you get what you need. They exist to serve. That's how we must think about such men. Now imagine that if we all together went to a great banquet hall to dine in the home of a great king. And we all take our seats and throughout the evening of this banquet we see many servants hustling and bustling about in and out of the kitchen bringing us silverware and drinks and, and a salad and then a main course and then the, the, the best desserts that we could ever imagine. And then they come behind us and they, they clean up after us and we take the time to sit and rejoice and fellowship with one another. And then at the end of the meal, as we're all sort of pushed back from the table giving ourselves a little breathing room, talking about how good the food was, I stood up and looked across the table at one of you, and I said, I'm for Donnie! And I pointed over at the corner at this little waiter boy who's just waiting in the shadows for something to do. And then somebody else stood up, and they said, they, looked, they pointed at the other side and said, I'm for Jessica! And there's a little girl over in the corner just staring. She doesn't know what's happening. And then everybody else starts to stand up and to argue, well, I'm for this one, I'm for that one. And we begin to quarrel with ourselves about the waiter that we wanted to get behind and say was the best waiter or servant of the evening. Wouldn't that be absolutely ridiculous? That would be the silliest thing that could ever happen in such a situation. How dishonorable would that be to the king who has prepared all of this and has ordered his servants and has delighted our hearts for us to stand up and argue about which, is, which was the better servant. And how humiliating would that be to the servants? Because they're thinking, we've got a great master and we're just trying to serve him. We're just doing what he told us to do. And now you're forcing us into this position where we're almost leading these factions against one another. We've been thrust into the head of, of all, like dueling armies against one another. It would be an absolute embarrassment to them all. And yet this is what the Corinthians had done. Because they were asking who rather than what. And in the present state of the church, we do not have apostles and prophets anymore. We have pastors or elders, same thing. These are the men that are set aside to be the, the servants, the ministers of the church. How should you think of them? As just that, as ministers, as servants. Now that shouldn't be strange. When I say that, hopefully you're not thinking, whoa, I was thinking a little differently. Hopefully this is not strange. It's not novel. Historically, to hold the office of the pastor elder was to be in the, quote, Christian ministry or the gospel ministry. That's what it was called. The call to such an office was called, referred to as the call to the ministry. 
a far cry from what we hear many times today. I've been called to preach. A call to preach which very rarely assumes the posture of a servant. What does that mean? Well, I want to stand up and tell everybody what to do. I want to give my opinion on things. But the call was a call to the ministry. As I thought about this, I, I looked across my desk where I keep my, my books on pastoral theology, and I noted the titles on the spines. Most of them are old books. The Ministry of the Word. And all around ministry, an earnest ministry, the Christian ministry, an able and faithful ministry, expository ministry, a philosophy of ministry. That is the role and function of the pastor. He is a minister. He is a servant. Everybody's always known that. He's the one spoken of by our Lord in Luke 17 where he, he does use a different term, but they're, they're parallel ideas. Our Lord says, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep those are pictures that Paul uses to describe the ministry to Timothy, the hardworking farmer, cutting a straight course in the Word of God, tending the sheep. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. He's the one in Matthew 24 whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Over the household? To give them their food. Make sure they eat. His duty, according to Acts 20, 28, is to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. And just like a waiter in a restaurant, he has no business in the kitchen telling the chef what to do or how to make the food. He's just a servant. He's the waiter. A servant does not dictate what his master does. The master rules over the servant. And in the same way, the Christian minister at the end of his life, simply says with Ezekiel, I prophesied as I was commanded. I have only done what was my duty. Now how contrary would this thinking have been to those self-seeking, self-promoting people in Corinth? They want to get behind a man who will stand up head and shoulders above all of them and say, yes, I will lead the charge against those other preachers. And I will, I'll make you look good as I do it. And one commentator says, quote, The image of a lowly minister would have conveyed a value system completely opposite the value system of the status-hungry Corinthians. And this idea isn't really promoted all that well Today, even in our own circles, this idea of, of the, quote, lowly minister. Because we love to lift men higher and higher and higher and make sure everybody knows which faction or which sect we belong to based on the men that we listen to. And I'll admit that at times the reality that is set forth here is not immediately met with great enthusiasm in my own heart. 
And so I have to repeat it to myself often. A servant. A servant. A servant. Just a servant. Now sadly, most men in the Christian ministry are opposed to taking that low place. The place of a servant. We like to find the happy middle ground between a world-famous celebrity and a nationwide celebrity. Somewhere in there. We don't realize that if we would humble ourselves, if we would go down, 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 lower, 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 we'd actually find our Savior there. The one who's gone lower than any of us. The place of a lowly servant has been crowned with glory and honor by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. You say, that sounds like an awfully low place. The pastor with his head on his shoulders says, you're right. None of us will ever go as low as Christ went. The only who that matters just happens to be the one that has gone lower than us all. And the ministers of Christ are servants in this way only in as much as they follow the pattern set by Christ Himself. We read in John chapter 13, when He had washed their feet and put on His outer garments and resumed His place, He said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. That's what Christ said. He said, I've gotten down low. I've served you. Now, you're not better than me, so if you're going to be my servants, then you must serve. At the Last Supper, after serving his disciples, he said, I am among you as one who serves. And in Mark 10, 45, he said, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The role of service to the people of God could not receive a greater commendation than it received when the incarnate Son of God took that role upon Himself. He has perfumed the role of servant. He has overlaid it with heavenly glory and has made all of its trials sweet. Now someone might hear what Paul's saying here and they might say, so they're just Servants? That's how we should think of them? Servants? Like, like, a, like a waiter? Like a, like a flight attendant on an airplane? There is more to the picture, but basically, yeah. That about covers it. Now, some people want to try to defend their fellow man, and so they would ask, well, isn't that too low of a way of thinking for the man of God? Well, again, no man in the Christian ministry has gone low enough to parallel the condescension of Christ. If anything, we we need to go lower. Because again, the lower we go, the more powerful the fragrance of Christ will become to us. Because He's gone lower than us all. And that's what Paul said as the men discussed yesterday morning in Philippians 3, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That I may know Him. 
and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. The servant of Christ will often have to fight against his own fleshly aversion to losing all things and sharing in suffering. The, the true servant of Christ wants to know Christ. He wants what Paul's describing here. Sadly, he also wants to keep his things. And he wants to avoid suffering. Many times he wants to avoid suffering at all costs. His spirit is willing, but his flesh is very, very Weak. But is this too low of a place? Never. None of us, regardless of our position or role in the church, none of us will ever go too low to serve our brothers and sisters. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says they are servants through whom you believed. And here he's emphasizing the agency by which sinners had come to faith in Jesus Christ. The minister of Christ is a vessel. He's a channel. He's a means by which saving faith is worked or wrought in the hearts of men and women. Now it's important to note that he doesn't say servants in whom you believed, but through whom you believed. A Christian's faith is not in the man who preaches to him. As Christians, our faith is in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And Christ is brought near to the heart of believer and unbeliever alike through the preaching that God's servant exercises as he delivers the word of God. The servant is the one who says, Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Not believe on my name, but believe on him. And saving faith is, is not a small matter. I hope we understand that. It's not some human concoction. No, no preacher stands up and says, Now work real hard and see if you can muster up some faith to believe what I'm saying. Apart from the supernatural power of God, nobody comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ. James says, Of his own will, he brought us forth. He, 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 the picture is almost like a birth, a delivery. He brought us forth. We were birthed. By the word of truth. And Paul says in Romans 10, faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. So yes, the vehicle of our faith is preaching that comes by the preacher. But regeneration and the fruit of regeneration, which is saving faith, only comes by the power of God. Only God can do that. These men are just a vessel through which God has chosen to work. The preacher is just the means to get the word out. As it's been said by others, his job is just to get the food from the kitchen to the table and try not to mess it up on the way. That's his job. This is how we should think. Servants. A vessel in the hand of God. But it goes even further because he says servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. That is, as the Lord has assigned to each particular servant their role to play, their, their particular place in the work. The Lord assigns the roles and functions of His ministers. It is the Lord who assigns the time of their birth and the time of their death. God decides the generation in, in which every one of these men will live and preach. He assigns their dwelling places where they'll live. And then He gives gifts to them. Some of them natural, some of them, many of them supernatural that come 
when they're born again. And as they grow in grace, God gives that to them. The Lord of heaven and earth oversees and overrules the whole of the salvation of man. We believe and understand and affirm that. Typically, when we say God is sovereign in salvation, we have in mind mainly the, the sinner who is being saved. Well, God is also sovereign on the other end over the men who declare the word through whom that faith and salvation comes. God lords over it all. It is God who assigns different men to different times and places with different gifts in order to bring to pass His purposes. Why? Paul's already told us. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Not the hearer, not the preacher. Nobody gets to boast. We don't even get to boast in our pastors. No boasting in the kingdom of God. So Paul has taken the Corinthians' view of, of their preachers down. You can see all, all, further and further and further. He's, he's, if we, we think about preachers ourselves, he's taking us down a notch at a time. They're servants. They are simply a vehicle of bringing the Word of God to people, and even that they do only as the Sovereign Lord dictates. And this is how one should think about preachers or their pastors. They are servants of the church. They are ministers of the Word under the authority of their Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now just briefly, some questions for for application. The first is obvious. Is this how you think about your ministers? Did I just describe your thinking? When you think about your pastors, elders, or perhaps anybody from which you might hear the Word of God, do you think this man is a servant? Here in the church... Do you think these men are here to serve me and my family? These men don't make the food. They just bring it to the table. Is that the way you think? If I need help, I know who to ask. The servants. If I need a napkin, I wave down the waiter. If I order Pepsi and he brought Diet Pepsi, I wave him back down. Hey, I order Pepsi. I know who to ask. Is that how we think about our ministers in the church? If I need help. And this is not saying the waiter is perfect, that he's infallible, that he's back there making Pepsi for us so that it's really good. No, he just goes back to the machine. Oh, sorry, I got you the wrong thing. He might, he might have just made a mistake and he has to go back to where he came from and come back out. But at least... There's an understanding there's somebody in the position of the servant. Is that how we think? And if not, then what do we do? We ask the Lord to renew our minds. Lord, renew my thinking. Transform my thinking so that I can honor you and your institutions. And the second question is that. Is the way that you think honoring to God? When you go into a time where a man is going to bring to you the Word of God, do you think the Lord has surely prepared a good meal? He always prepares good meals. He's never prepared a bad one yet. I'm expecting the Lord to give me something. Or do you say, well, I sure hope this preacher gets it right today. 
I hope he does a good job because I'm really dependent upon this man. See, that doesn't honor the Lord. Do you look to the Lord and expect to receive what He has for you? Or do you expect a waiter, a servant, a minister to fill a role that only God can fill? That doesn't honor God. And it does a great disservice to the minister. Because he's seeking to honor his master. He would never desire to take the place of his master. And if you try to put him in that position, now you're expecting far more out of a man than a man could ever provide. That doesn't honor God. That doesn't honor the minister himself. Is the way you think honoring to God? See, questions like these help us to recalibrate ourselves, which is necessary given that our flesh often produces such contrary extremes. And a lot of times we feel like our Christian life is just that, just a bouncing back and forth from extremes. Right? I, I idolize the man. I hate the man. I idolize the man. I hate the man. He's nothing. He's wonderful. He's nothing. He's wonderful. We have to come back to the Word of God and say, Lord, recalibrate me so that I can think properly. See these men as servants, as ministers. And then, of course, the ultimate remedy is always to look back to the only who that matters. Fix the eyes of your faith on Jesus Christ. Jesus. Study who He is and what He's done. And it might help for you from time, help you from time to time that when you've studied who He is and what He's done, to close your Bible and to say, my elders couldn't do that. That's good for you. We can't do what He's done. We can't be who He is. He's the only one. Study the love and zeal that he has for his bride. And then maybe you close your Bible and you say, my elders love us, but they don't love me like that. Or search out the promises that Christ has made regarding his sheep. And then maybe you close your Bible and you say, my elders have never made a promise like that. They couldn't, and if they did, they'd be liars and they couldn't keep it. What does that help us to do? It helps to remind us there's only one who. That matters. There's only one. There are men who are placed in a place of service, but they cannot do what He can do. And the more we fix our eyes upon Him, that helps us to see Him properly, but also to view them properly. Surely when we've lived close to Jesus, we will expect great things from Him through His ministers for our good. We will not ignore or downplay the role of the ministers because they are gifts given by Christ to the church. But we also won't elevate them to an unhealthy pedestal. Why? Because they are simply Christ's servants. You find that middle ground by studying Christ, knowing Him, looking to Him. 